Welcome back to the Oscar Project Podcast, the show where I discuss Oscar-nominated films year by year. I am your host, Jonathan Eterberg, and in today's first episode of 2024, I'm bringing you an interview with Saul Austerlitz, author of the recently published book, Kind of a Big Deal, How Anchorman Stayed Classy and Became the Most Iconic Comedy of the 21st Century. Before I jump into the interview, please subscribe to the show in your podcast player so you can get all the newest episodes as soon as they are released. If you like the interview and want to hear more, please consider leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Saul Austerlitz is a freelance writer whose work has been published in the New York Times, Esquire, Vanity Fair, and Rolling Stone, among others. He is an adjunct professor of writing and comedy history at New York University and the author of Generation Friends, Just a Shot Away, Sitcom, Another Fine Mess, and Money for Nothing. He joins me today to talk about his new book, Kind of a Big Deal, How Anchorman Stayed Classy and Became the Most Iconic Comedy of the 21st Century. Saul, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start off with what drew you to Anchorman as a subject for your book. You mentioned in the introduction that you start off your classes each January by showing it the first day. But what is it about this film that makes it worthy of a deep dive book like this? So I started off showing it to my class in part as a kind of provocation to get them to think about what either a movie that they didn't know much about or one that they had kind of dismissed as fun, but you know, empty cinematic calories and, and instead think about all the different ways they might approach it as aspiring critics, all all the different tools in their arsenal that they might be able to use, whether it's talking about the legacy of Saturday Night Live on movies, whether it's talking about Will Ferrell or Adam McKay's career, whether it's talking about the ways in which the 1970s or feminism get, um, utilized in the movie, and just to start thinking about how all the different approaches that you could have to writing about comedy. And I really enjoyed it, and it always led to interesting conversations in the classroom. And it took me years of doing this before I realized that, of course, I wanted to write about this movie. And I had, hopefully, fun things to say about it and wanted to explore it in more detail. And and that's kind of what kicked this project off for me. Excellent. Now, you mentioned a minute ago, there's a lot of memorable things in the film, a lot of different sequences that that people can talk about, be it the street brawl with the other news teams, the animated sequence with Ron and Veronica, even Ron's breakdown after Veronica takes the news over and he loses Baxter. How did Farrell and McKay build these sequences into a larger narrative that made sense instead of it just being an extended group of SNL skits? Yeah, I think that was the challenge for them. And in talking to them, it was clear that that was the thing that they, uh, you know, sort of needed the most assistance with, that they started off with a script that they had written together, and it sounded much more like an SNL sketch than the final product, where, you know, the, the initial version of Anchorman had the newscasters flying to a newscasters convention in Philadelphia and the plane crashing and the survivors indulging in cannibalism and there being uh, orangutans with ninja throwing stars who would pick off the survivors as well. And, you know, a lot of over-the-top comedic stuff. And, um, you know, they got some very positive feedback from producers and from studios, but the general vibe was there's not enough humanity in here. There's not enough reason for us to care about any of these characters. And so Judd Apatow was brought in as a kind of uh, script whisperer for them, as someone to help 
guide them through the process. And, and he told them, you know, guys, you've written a wonderful Monty Python film, but you're not Monty Python yet. And so let's find a way to dial down the silliness a little bit and make these characters a little bit more real for us and have the stakes be a little bit higher. And so I think he was a really important part of the process in terms of getting them to think about not just what's funniest, but also what are ways in which we can make sure that the audience cares about these characters and cares about what's happening to them. For sure. And you mentioned a minute ago as well, uh, a little bit about, you know, the feminine 1970s. I love that you devoted a whole chapter in the book entirely to talking about Veronica, talking about the real life women that paved the way for all the women newscasters we see today. If you can take a minute and talk a bit about how the film uses Veronica's character to comment on Ron and his friends and the whole male dominated culture of the 1970s newsroom. Yeah. So it's worth noting that the movie gets its start when Will Ferrell is flipping channels one night and comes across uh, an A&E biography about Jessica Savage, the 1970s newscaster, and hearing the ways in which male newscasters were talking about how, of course, we were all a bunch of male chauvinist pigs at the time, kind of sparked something for Farrell. And I think that there are quite a few ways in which Anchorman is a kind of, you know, half biopic of Jessica Savage, including a lot of the stories of her early career and the hurdles she faced. And, you know, Anchorman is clearly a broad comedy. Um, It's not intended to be taken as drama, but I think a lot of that DNA is in there regardless. And the way that the movie is structured, it's very clear that we're on Veronica's side and that Veronica emerges as the winner in all of the debates and showdowns that she has with the, you know, misogynist bullies in her office. Um, And so I think the movie, it often gets overlooked the extent to which the movie is about kind of the unblinking misogyny of male dominated spaces and the ways in which, you know, kind of crafty women like Veronica are able to overcome that. And I think interestingly, you know, the movie is set in the 1970s. It's, it's intentionally set in the past so that audiences can laugh at it. Right. So it doesn't feel like, right. um, I think if it was set in the present, people would have more difficulty laughing at it because the feeling would be, well, these are villains. These are terrible people doing terrible things and setting it in the past allows it to feel more like, well, these are problems we've overcome, right? These are things that have changed. This is, these are the bad old days. And I think one of the things that's changed over the course of the almost 20 years since the movie has come out is that I think we maybe have a little bit less plausible deniability to assume (laughs) that, you know, all professional spaces or all men are behaving impeccably at this point in time and that the problem of treating women poorly has come to an end. Right. Yeah. And and that kind of dovetails into my next uh, question. I want to read a quick excerpt from the book. Uh, It's page 95. Uh, the quote is, the news in the 1970s was redesigned to be as inviting and friendly as possible and to report on what you, an audience member or a, a member of the audience, wanted to hear about most. It was understood that the local news would no longer do any hard reporting, would not cover stories with policy or societal import, would not reflect hard truths back to a too comfortable audience. Instead, audiences would watch a hastily edited nightly compilation of action sequences 
puff pieces and human interest stories designed to flatter their pre-existing beliefs, juice their adrenaline, and warm their shriveled hearts. Now, when I read that, I immediately thought of McKay's most recent film, Don't Look Up, the scene specifically where the scientists, uh, played by Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence, appear on the news pro program to talk about the impending end of the Earth, and they get brushed aside by Kate Blanchett and Tyler Perry's anchor characters. Am I wrong in thinking that this scene is almost a natural progression of the kind of newsroom absurdity we see in Anchorman brought into that present day news culture you were just talking about? Oh, yeah. No, I think you're exactly correct. I think it's, it's very interesting to think about some of the relationships between Anchorman and McKay, McKay's later films and the ways in which kind of media critique and media satire have been an a constant presence in his work, even looking at some of the early SNL sketches that are operating on in a similar landscape and working with similar material. But yeah, I think, you know, looking at in, in Anchorman, it's possible, I think, to watch the movie and sort of miss some of the media critique because mm -hmm. there's so much else that's happening and it's so funny. But even by the time of Anchorman 2, you know, the, the media critique is much more front and center, much right. more uh underlined and underscored and don't look up as well i think is you know very much a movie about the kind of i, I was going to say it's an exaggeration of our contemporary media <laughs> landscape but it's not even really all it's that not really that bad <laughs> kind of a depiction of our yeah. contemporary media yeah. landscape so I loved reading uh, towards later on in the book how the editing team would be laughing at the film throughout the post-production. Um, how does this speak to the rewatchability of the film that even the people involved intimately in making it uh, were able to continue laughing and continue being you know, humored by the film as they were editing it? Yeah, you know, I got to interview Brent White, uh, who was the editor on the film, and he was one of the first people I got to speak to. And I loved hearing about the process that he put in place for making the movie and the ways in which he was able to look at, you know, 20 different takes of a given scene, each of which might take the movie in a different direction or right. offer a different kind of ad lib and think about, well, if we slot in this sequence, you know, how will it affect the, this other sequence eight scenes later? Um, and just kind of, you know, being able to look at, incredibly funny people doing funny things and still reach some sort of judgment of, okay, this is what works best, or this is really funny, but it's not quite in line with the other bits and pieces of the movie. I found that to just be kind of a fascinating task to work at. And yeah, I think it, it speaks to the quality of the movie. And it, I think it also speaks to the fundamental rightness of McKay and Farrell's idea that we could bring in improvisation into SNL style, you know, sketch and improvisation into feature filmmaking and have it be successful that they ended up having such a wealth of material that the movie stayed limber and stayed fresh. And, you know, I think the other evidence of that, that I, I bring out for in the book is the existence of this other movie, Wake Up Ron right. Burgundy, you know, which is composed entirely of kind of uh, editing room scraps that there was so much uh, clever and funny stuff from the movie that Brent White was able to take, you know, the plot line of the alarm clock, this, you know, 1970s sort of vaguely radical group that gets excised from the movie and, and build an entirely different movie out of the remains 
um, without having any repeats from the original film. And so I think that also speaks to just the sheer abundance of uh, exceptional comic material that they had for them here. Sure, it's almost like an extended, uh, you know, gag reel, bloopers, deleted scenes from the DVD is that, that whole extra film that they put together. Exactly. So toward the end of the book, you relate Ron Burgundy and Anchorman to some of the other comedy films of the era, like 40-Year-Old Virgin and Superbad, just to name a few. What was it about that period in the early 2000s that spawned all these great comedies and kind of what happened to make that comedy renaissance dry up a little bit after that period? Yeah, I think some of it was was the confluence of of these talented performers and directors who were working together. And so, you know, McCann and Farrell form a partnership, but there's also in all of the movies of this era, there's a kind of, you know, trading places scenario where we're constantly getting a different collection of director and stars and supporting performers, um, I think, in in creative ways. Um, you know, there are definitely downsides to the movies of that era. I don't think that, I think Anchorman to the side, um, there's often not a lot in the way of, of meaty or funny uh, female roles in these movies. Uh, they often have women in kind of supporting roles or as the like hectoring right. wife or a girlfriend. Um, so that's a definite notable limitation of the movies of this era. But I think that they really flourished because so many of them were about that in some fashion. They were about, you know, what does it take for men to grow up? What does it take for men right. to kind of embrace maturity? And there was a lot of really exceptional comic material to be found in that. I think the I think the main thing that's changed and that's kind of caused comedy to dry up is is less about the performers or the stories and more about the industry. You know, the um, as the as the movie industry kind of goes further and further into the Marvel and Star Wars kind of big action sci-fi fantasy blockbuster era, you know, the right. IP era of we only make a movie if everyone already knows what it is. It, it's not a hospitable space for comedy. Um, comedies don't lend themselves particularly well to the idea of IP. Um, they're not going to make for these kind of giant mega, you know, 500, $600 million blockbusters right. most of the time. And, you know, these movies are so expensive to make, the, the kind of Marvel and Star Wars-esque movies, that they really lean on international box office and comedies don't travel particularly well. You know, right. most sometimes uh, comedies literally can't be translated for other countries. Sometimes just metaphorically, they don't translate particularly well. And so I think that we've seen comedies dry up some uh, as a result of that. And so, you know, one of the things I write about in the book is bringing out this kind of awful essay by Christopher Hitchens, where he's talking about, you know, he's writing about bridesmaids and talking about like, can women be funny? Um, and I think one of the things that's happened is that we've, we've sort of had, we've ended up in a scenario where we're having a kind of similar dialogue about comedy each time there's a new feature film comedy that comes out where, you know, a movie like Bottoms comes out and the conversation is basically like, is it worthwhile to make comedies anymore? Like, mm -hmm. can comedies be successful? Well, we'll find out on Monday, depending on how the box office right. is. And so I think that just, that puts an enormous amount of pressure on the people who make these movies and just, you know, makes it less likely for them to continue to get made. I will say though, that 
the the sort of ray of light that I see is that in addition to being, you know, the biggest blockbuster of the year and being a movie that's about, um, you know, so many other things, Barbie is also a comedy uh, and I think a very yeah. successful comedy. And I wonder whether the success of Barbie may open the door to, you know, some, some uh, return of big screen comedies in a way that we haven't seen much of in the last 10 years. Definitely. Well, let's, let's hope so. Um, you had a number of references at the end of the book, uh, but were there any specific books or articles that people should check out if they enjoyed yours and want to learn even more about Anchorman? About Anchorman specifically? Or, or, or in general about, about comedy or, or anything that you touch on in the book? Um, neither of these are particularly specific to my book, but I would definitely recommend um, Wild and Crazy Guys by Nick DeSemlian, which is about the kind of comedy stars of the 1980s and early 90s, which I think is just a really wonderful and well-researched and very entertaining book about sort of the previous era in American film comedy. Mm -hmm. Um, And on a somewhat different note, I would also recommend um, the recent book by my friend Thea Glassman, uh, Freaks, Gleeks, and Dawson's Creek, which is about like the teen teen television shows of, you know, starting in the early nineties and moving to today. And uh, she covers a tremendous amount of, of ground on the television landscape. And I think does an exceptional job of telling the stories of these shows and delving into, you know, why audiences cared so desperately and passionately about these shows and, and kind of what made each of them tick. And it's just, it's a terrific read. Excellent. Um, So what do you think the legacy of Anchorman is now 20 years since its re- original release? Obviously we've seen a bunch of different iterations of it, a uh, sequel and, and other versions over the, the past years, but what's the legacy of, of the whole Anchorman film and Ron Burgundy as a character? Yeah, I think Ron Burgundy is one of those rare characters that kind of exceeds the space of the movie that he's put in and becomes a figure in culture kind of beyond that. Right. And so Ron Burgundy ends up being in television commercials. He makes appearances at award ceremonies. He shows up on the local news in North Dakota, um, you know, ESPN broadcasts. And so I think there's a way in which something about Ron Burgundy so deeply connected with people that he ended up kind of exceeding the bounds of the movie that he was in. And I think in terms of, of the legacy of Anchorman, I think a big part of it is relating to this question of like, what, what happens to film comedy or how do we think about film comedy? You know, one of the things I talk about in my book is, is sort of putting Anchorman and Bridesmaids as the, as the kind of bookends of this era of film comedy. And, you know, it's not like we were talking about, it's not clear to me whether there will necessarily be successors. And so in some ways those films are kind of the last truly great, comedies that are mm-hmm. really embraced by a mass audience. Right. So I have a couple questions, not specifically related to the book, but before I move on to those, is there anything else you want to touch on about the book? No, let's move on to your questions. Excellent. So I'll give you the hardest one first. You've obviously watched a lot of films over the course of your career, but if you had to pick a top three, what would they be? Mm, that is a tough one. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to artificially limit myself by just talking about comedies. <laughs> Okay. So uh, 
I'll, I'll, I definitely have to start with Charlie Chaplin, who is still the greatest to ever do it. And one of the other movies I showed to my students in class is City Lights. And there's definitely some concern on their part about watching, you know, a black and white <laughs> silent film, but it wins them over almost every time. Sure. Chaplin is just, you know, a genius and City Lights is, is the best and most moving thing he ever did. Um, and another, you know, older classic that I absolutely love, which I was just talking about with a friend is the shop around the corner, the Ernst Lubitsch movie. Uh, it's the inspiration for you've got mail, but it's, uh, you know, so much better than that. Uh, just really beautiful, uh, heartbreaking romantic comedy. That's exceptionally funny and moving. Um, I can't recommend it enough. And, um, yeah, of more recent films, I guess, yeah, I've been on a real Wes Anderson kick recently watching the Netflix um, shorts that he did. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think of all the movies I've ever seen, the one that's given me the most continuous and sustained pleasure and enjoyment and and has moved me each time I've watched it has been Rushmore, uh, which is a movie I just greatly love and admire uh, and has beautiful performances, has probably the best performance that Bill Murray has ever given in his career and is just an exceptional, exceptional work. Wonderful. So moving on to a little bit more fun question, if you could invite any three movie characters to your next dinner party, who would they be and why? Well, I guess I have to invite Ron Burgundy since <laughs> so the question becomes who I can invite that, you know, Ron will, will behave around. Um, yeah, I'm feeling like, uh, let's see. Yeah, maybe I'll invite Kristen Week's character from Bridesmaids. I feel like they might get along. Um, yeah, that'd be interesting. Yeah, and this maybe this this might violate the space time continuum, but I, I feel like inviting Will Ferrell's character from um, Talladega Nights. They that he and Ron would also uh, find a lot to talk about. And, they, they would bond. Yeah, they, they would get along. I'm pretty sure. That's that, that'll be an interesting dinner party. That's, uh, that's a fun one. Um, so, do you have any uh, books that you could recommend that you've read recently? I know you mentioned a couple before, but any anything else, fiction, nonfiction, and obviously don't have to be about movies necessarily. Yeah. So I, I was thinking recently about some of the novels that I read this year. Uh, so I will definitely, um, I'll say that the best thing that I read this year. Uh, on a completely different note, was The Deluge by Stephen Markley. It is a large hunk of a book. It's about 900 (laughs) pages long. Um, But it is just an exceptional exceptional novel. Um, It's about kind of imagining the near future of the United States through the lens of climate change in particular. I feel like oftentimes we get these kinds of post-apocalyptic stories where we skip to the end and everything's fallen apart and everything's terrible. And also there's never any kind of politics in those stories. And I think the thing that Markley does is he's trying to imagine, well, what will the near future look like if we head down this particular path that I'm imagining? And it's so beautifully executed and really well thought out and so genuine that there were times as I was reading it that I had to remind myself like, oh, these things haven't actually happened. Like this is the story of the book. Uh, The other book that I really loved this year was The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store by James McBride. Uh, He's an author that 
I've read his previous books and really like them, but I think in a lot of ways, this is the best thing he's done. It's just a beautiful book about Black and Jewish life uh, in Pittsburgh and the ways in which these communities relate to each other and um, just tells a really lovely and heartwarming and painful story. And he's just an exceptionally gifted writer. Wonderful. We'll we'll be sure to link to those in the show notes uh, so people can check those out if they're interested. And uh, lastly, before we wrap up, I know the book has been out for a couple of months. Do you have any other projects lined up uh, next? And where can people find you online to get updates for those if you have anything going on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm, 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 you know, figuring out the next steps book-wise. Uh, I've started a new Substack newsletter called Hope in the Dark, and and people can check me out over there. I try to write about movies and television, and and you know, f- uh, kind of pick interesting scenes or moments from shows or movies that I've been looking at recently and and delve into them a little bit. Wonderful. We'll be sure to link to that as well. Well, Saul, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Really thank you for your time today and uh, for giving us the insights on this uh, great movie. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you again to my guest today, Saul Austerlitz. His newest book, Kind of a Big Deal, is out now, and I'll have a link to where you can pick that up in the show notes, along with links to the movies and books mentioned throughout the interview. The Oscar Project Podcast is written and produced by me, Jonathan Eterberg, with editing assistance from Joshua Eterberg. Please come back for my next episode, where I will be speaking with Katie G. Salisbury about her upcoming book, Not Your China Doll, The Wild and Shimmering Life of Anime Wong. Until then, I hope to see you at the movies.